You know, Chris, when I read the book, and I love pictures, right? Mm. And, but it's great timing because the Prime Minister had announced a few months ago that New Zealand history is going to be part of the curriculum. And it's so important for um, our future generations, for us, uh, right here in the present. And um, as we go into the future, this will be a great resource. I mean, it's a, a collection of mm. a lot of things. It's mm. us here in Aotearoa, although we live in different places, but it collects us all into this wonderful publication. So, Chris, um, tell us about the, the um, Atlas and why this is so different and how was it created and why, 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 was, the perp- why was the process? What was the process and why <laughs> was it created? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's very deliberately called an Atlas of Aotearoa. Like, I want more atlases to be made. The way that this came out is that about five years ago, um, I was at an event at Victoria University, and um, a gentleman who, I, who may be in the audience um, approached me to do this, um, to do a book of infographics for, for Te Papa um, Press. And we got to the stage of, of contracts and all that sort of thing. And it was around the time that um, the press was closed. It was announced that the, pr- the press was going to close down. I thought I was getting into a project that was going to be led by these curators, and I was going to make some maps for them, and I was going to make some graphics. When it looked like Te Papa Press wouldn't exist, we, we moved it to another publisher, and suddenly I was left holding this thing. The process was really this mad DIY project where I just kept on trying things and testing things and showing things to people and abandoning things. And there is a whole other book that wasn't made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, for example, when, when Nadine's essay arrived, I completely scrapped almost the entire back chapter. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's a better book for it. <laughs> I have such a newfound respect for curators and the, and the curatorial act, and I never really... I'd worked around curators at, at, when I was at National Library of New Zealand, but I had never really appreciated how difficult it is to, to select what goes into something. Mm. Um, it's a very, very difficult thing. It's like a lolly shop in the supermarket, isn't it? It's a lolly shop in the supermarket where the stakes are just ratcheted up that much higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you choose? I mean, there was around about a dozen contributors to the book. How, how, what's your process in choosing people? There were three people in there who I've known for a very long time, um, who I approached, um, two in particular, um, Dan um, Hikaroa and um, Siming Mok, are, are both people who um, I've known for, oh gosh, 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, Lily and Grace I'd known for a little while, and so those three I, I knew that I wanted, and then the rest it was through, through conversations with Nicola Leggett, my editor, um, and, and just sort of reading around widely and, and looking at different people and and approaching people and, and sending them things and then just being really surprised and delighted when they said yes. It feels like there's been a lot of luck or something woven through this, through this project, even though it took so long. I sometimes call it magic, sometimes I call it tipuna guidance or you know, just that feeling that things are, uh, when you're flowing in the right place. And mm. I wrote this story, O Maru Hakiki, um, after a trip to Wairua, 
I was um, leaving my marriage and I was on a solo road trip and I was trying to get to Whakatane and I just couldn't get there because I couldn't get, go beyond Wairua. And I um, had a holiday at Mōrere and I wrote a few stories while I was there. I had no idea where they would go for publication. I felt sure that no one would want them because they were like part travel log and then there were just this really, really heavy sense of mamai for what I was going through but also for our whenua. Mm. Um, you know, the stories there, which I'm not from there, but I feel like I can feel this strong connection to that place. And I spent this long time at the Wairua Museum. The people there, they just didn't know what was going on. I turned up like three days in a row and did the same exhibition over and over again. And it, that all started because I went to, a, I, I was riding along Wairua and the, the waterfront, and I came across a monument. And that monument said that Pitiira Kopu was a staunch friend of the Pākehā, and it just captured my attention. I was like, what does it mean to be a friend of the Pākehā? And I come from Pākehā and Māori whakapapa, so I feel like, you know, a lot of the stuff, uh, it's hard to know where, you know, I have loyalties, you know, and this was something that came out at the Wairua exhibition, is this question of sides and loyalties, and that's really complicated in our country and we have to navigate it. And so my contribution to that was to sit with it and uh, go into that place through the history of this, this, this other iwi and to feel what it must have felt like to be fighting your own because the Crown forces were coming for the land and you had to decide which side you were going to go on. And I think that's our history, but it's our story today too. Mm -hmm. We talk about, um, you know, working inside and outside government, and that uh, is, creates real divisions for our people. I have a lot of respect for people who work in our government departments because it's important work and we have to be there, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am really grateful that I was able to uh, put this kōrero in here, but I wrote it, I did write it, nearly two years ago because this project has been delayed. <laughs> so, you know, it's a real inspiration that you kept on going. Um, I would ask myself, would I write the same story now? And I think I've come so far in my writing in terms of my thinking that I would probably do things differently and mm. you probably would do things differently too. And I just think that that is important to acknowledge that, that this is not the whole story, it's not the end, it's just the start. Mm. At the beginning, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I am grateful to be here. It feels like magic that I wrote the story and when I wrote it, I was like, I don't know what I'm writing it for or why, but I just did it like 12 hours not eating and then when it finished, I sent it to some place and they didn't want to publish it the way it was and then uh, Leonie sent me an email and she said, I'd like to introduce you to Chris. And here we are. So Veronica, you, you, you had a significant part to play my introduction to this project is quite different to Nadine's. When I got your email, the email started with explaining this atlas, the project that you were doing, and it was like two or three paragraphs of just that. And I, I was in awe of his work anyway, so I thought, well, that's kind of lovely. Just the fact that he was sharing the project that he was doing it with me was exciting enough. And then there was the last line at the end of it. I was wondering whether you'd want to contribute an essay, and I did a little dance around my office. Uh -oh. <laughs> and then Chris told me that it was he would like me to write for the chapter on air and water. Air for me is atmosphere, and water I actually thought of ocean. 
So my mm. first image in my head was the big white ocean around Aotearoa and the atmosphere. So for me, it was clear quite quickly that it would be something to do with a changing climate, changing everything, really changing environment. And then you send me the first spreads, you know, mm. the first work you were starting to do. And I'm just checking that, yes, this is the one that is my, from that chapter, is my favourite. It's a very accessible map. You don't need to look twice. You don't need to do any figuring out what you're looking at. It is just all the waterways, the rivers, channels, creeks in New Zealand that we have. And what I love about it is that simplicity. It's just one thing, but you can read a lot into it. And you look at it and you don't need to draw an outline of the main motu of New Zealand. The rivers do that for us. You can see the shape mm. of the land just through looking at the water. Then for me, I found myself wandering up and down the islands and finding the rivers that I know, that I had stories about, that I had visited, that I had lived around for a while. Our first year in New Zealand, or our first time in New Zealand when we first arrived, was down south between Dunedin and Central Otago, so the Clutha River is one of the rivers that I feel like I've spent some time with, and it was at the time when the dam was being built. So it was a major, one of the big, large changes to a river in its natural flow for generational electricity. Then I jumped up to the North Island, and I look at the Whanganui, and I think that's one of your favourite spreads later in the book. Mm. There is a map of just that river. The river that was the first natural landscape in New Zealand that became a legal entity in its own right, was granted the legal rights of a person. And that was such a significant thing. And it, when you look at the river in its, by itself, you and your essay, you draw the similarities between bodies and nature and the fact that a river looks like veins or a blood system or kind of a life force. And I, I really like looking at this map in that way. Then the other thing that I then jumped from Whanganui, I jumped to Taranaki, which is, be, which is going to be the next natural landscape that will become a legal person, that Maunga. And if you look at Taranaki, you don't need any contour lines to tell you that there's a mountain. You look at the rivers and you know that mm. there's a mountain. The way they spring from one place, run all the way down to the sea. You know, just looking at that, that mm. there's a mountain in that land. So I love that map particularly for that. But to just share another story, Ming and our preparation for this asked us all to speak about ourselves and what our loved ones would say about us and what, how they would describe us. And I took you by your word and I went and asked my loved ones how they would describe me. <laughs> and I don't know that it was a helpful exercise, but <laughs> it was reassuring in a sense. The first things that came out were nice things. You're a great mum, you're a lovely mum. Then immediately followed by the caveats, but sometimes you're a bit weird. Um, and then all those things that I'm possibly most embarrassed about and wouldn't really want to share. But one of those perhaps less endearing qualities is that I'm magnificent at getting lost. And I'm particularly good at getting lost in built landscapes and in infrastructure. I can still get lost in my own office building regularly. <laughs> I'm a little better at finding my way in natural landscapes, so away from all the built stuff, which is why I love maps, mm. the old sort of tramping maps, you know, the high-resolution topo maps where you can run along, use your finger to run along a river, a creek, and you can imagine the landscape before you may walk in it. But my work, in many ways, is all of it, different versions of it, of all of it to do with using words to describe complex stuff. 
I mean, complex stuff is, in my case, often about nature, about science, about environment, about climate. And that's, how I, that's why I love the kind of data visualization, the data poetry, as one of the other <laughs> contributors has described it, <laughs> that Chris and Tim do in terms of using a different, almost wordless way of telling about that complexity. So that's why I feel privileged to be part of a, a work like this. I used to do orienteering when I was at school and I always got lost. I thought that I yeah. could just like run from one thing to the other and win. If you've ever done orienteering, that's not how it works. You've got to follow the map. And, but I love your essay, your opening essay talks about why you loved maps. Mm. That yeah. really, I was like, oh. That, that's where the title of the book came from in a way, from a concern that I have around technology, like personalization of technology and mapping technologies and the fact that we do use maps so frequently, much more frequently than any other generation ever has, and yet there's such narrow views and you, because it's all around wayfinding and often everything else is, is abandoned, all of the stuff on the side, and so what's lost is context. And, and, and there's something about the act of trying to find your way on a traditional map and trying to find yourself that, and, and as I was thinking that through, it's like instead of that sort of you are here, Google Maps yeah. way, it was sort of we are here mm. and, and trying to find yourself on the, on the page, you can't help but find other people too, I hope. So, yeah. You know, the, the book is not just maps of landscapes, it's data visualization of all sorts of societal issues. And so it is about belonging, recognizing yourself, finding links to other people, to places, to time as well. That mm. The Clutha for me is a, is a time marker. You know, I know that I arrived here when that river changed significantly. So there's, there's all sorts of entry points you find. But as we were talking at the start, I think this is a beginning of lots of discussions that hopefully will come from this. Because the first thing I wanted to know when I looked at this map is how many of these rivers can we swim in? At another event, someone asked me about which map do you wish was in there that's not there, and that was actually, that's the one, the, the, the health of New Zealand waterways. And I, I tried and I tried and I just couldn't quite get there. Yeah, because... I mean, even the colour blue makes us feel yeah. toe and, like, yeah. you know, mm. nice mm. about it. But actually, I took the train um, to Tamaki and I was really looking forward to it and I just couldn't get over how just unhealthy and how ill yeah. our, the interior of our land, the place that the road does not go. Yeah. Mm. No. And that's absolutely right. I mean, there's so many... Yeah. <laughs> there's oh, no, so many things. It is no, no, the no. question, it's, isn't it? It's, it's, it's totally legit. And, and it's one of those openings, I think, that comes through the book. For me, pretty much every spread opens up those sort of bigger issues. One of the big things that was tricky about this was needing to make sure that the thing was correct before... Or not correct, but, like, that... There are so many possibilities. The possibility space on any one of these maps is so huge that you eventually have to just collapse it down and present something. Um, this is sort of, it, it, it's been in my head as both of you are talking, but there's something about this map and a few of the others that came up. I can't remember if it actually made it into the final version of, of Dan Hikaroa's essay, but it was something we talk about quite a lot, just one-on-one, -on -one, and that's about how frustrated we are when people talk about um, 
how New Zealand or Aotearoa is a small country or how it's a young country. Mm. And this map, and when you talk about quietly subversive, that's actually one of the things I'm trying to say with this map is that that this isn't a small country. (laughs) It's such a complex, it's so complex and it's so impossible to know. Like the complexity that's there, like even just one of those little one of those little basins would take an entire lifetime to really mm-hmm. learn about. And so that's one of the things that I hope people take away from this is I kind of want to refute that, that notion that, that Aotearoa is a small country because, mm-hmm. sure, if you compare it to other places in the world, maybe relatively so, but I don't think it's a helpful way to think about this place because it suggests that it's knowable or manageable and it's, it's not so easily. No, and especially when you think that a lot of our history has actually been deliberately covered up over time and like yeah. the narrative has been changed quite deliberately and, um, you know, just, just sticking with the map, you know, I was at um, Ohenemutu in mm. Rotorua on the lakefront, and that lake has not been swimmable for a really long time. They pumped mm. some raw sewage into that lake for 60 years. It was a deliberate choice in this book to almost not use the word data at all. Um, it's almost not there. It's there a little bit in the, it's in the appendices and it's a little bit in the introduction and passing in a few places. And the motivation for that came from some work that I did, not to do with the book, for something else, where we were interviewing people, uh, people sort of between the ages of about 16 and 25 about data. And so the, the very first question to the very first person in this group um, was when you when you when we say the word data to you, what does that make you think of? And they were like, "Oh, you mean on my phone?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh sorry, what?" And they're like, "Oh, you know, like making sure I've got enough data each month." And we're like, "Oh, no, no, no. We sort of mean about yeah. measurements and observations and counting things." And they're like, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah." But mostly on my phone. And we thought it would just be <laughs> that would just be the first person. And almost every single person that we spoke to, when we asked them what do you think about, what does data mean to you, what does that bring to mind, would say, oh, you mean my phone. Mm-hmm. And Five gigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, unlimited. <laughs> and, and, and in thinking about this, trying to make something that, that, I, would, that ho- I hoped younger people would, mm. would want to read and would want to connect with, it was a really deliberate decision not to use this, this term data. And for older people as well, I mean, I, I think that it's quite a distancing term. It's quite a cold word, and, and I don't know if it's so helpful. Yeah. And the data's not the point. Yeah. Like the data's just the point is actually the insights that you get from it, or from or the things that you see, or the yeah. yeah. Can I add a, a nerd perspective on that? I love the use of data, and I'm quite happy to acknowledge it as data. Yeah. Even that alone, you know, throws, throws up all these questions about what are we actually collecting, what are we measuring, what are we wanting to know. And in, in my essay itself, I found myself torn because when you talk about climate change, you could look at the things we actually measure all the way up to the things we model. So you can go at the actual data points that we have right through to the predictive power of models and what might be the scenarios in the future. And I stuck to the stuff we measure and the stuff we've started measuring long before we started talking about climate change. It's all those temperature measurement stations and the gauges of tidal movements in harbours that are going back 100 years. And it's the, the, the measurements of actual carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere are a bit younger, but still we have 50 to 60 years of 
data on that. So I sort of find myself sticking to the things we have actual observations of that go right back in time before climate change became an issue. So I, I you know, there's, <laughs> I wouldn't do data quite so so strongly um, because I think it is an important way of also opening up the stories. We've, yeah. Like I was saying, we'll look at each spread, and I've had the same experience. I open up the spread. Some make me first feel something before I can even articulate it. And there's a page, two pages in it, about child poverty that has that impact on me. I still cannot actually talk about it, but it, it just has a, a very strong emotional impact in just seeing the magnitude of that issue. So I do appreciate the use of data for a different kind of storytelling that does not need many words as at all. Yeah, I guess what I I guess what I mean is that so I feel like there's something in the culture at the moment that is really foregrounding data as a word, mm. and like and they talk about like data rock stars and data is the new oil and data, and and this and I don't think that rhetoric is helpful and I think often more often than not it's really serving people trying to sell something or trying to recruit people or trying to market something and it loses sight of what's important. But data as a tool, as a thing that we use, as a thing that underlies our decision-making, and, mm. and it, I think it really is important. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's what my career is based on. <laughs> it's what I do. But it's a balance, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's totally. a balance, because um, you know, Nadine was talking about swimmable rivers, yeah. and, and um, also you know, there's a debate on the white bait at the present time. Oh. Yep. in the South Island, and, and if you fish it out, is there any more for tomorrow's kids yeah. or um, future generations that are coming on? Or when Māori um, talk about there used to be a lot of kaura, a lot of paua, mm. a lot of tuna, a lot of eels, yeah. our native fish and those things that mm. you could carry on. And I think that the language is what we use when we're transmitting a story and... One thing that strikes me is um, the use of the word we. And mm. who are we talking about when we say we? We need to find a better way to talk about our stories, you know, to talk about our history. And this is what I said in my opening. I said, me pātai o ki no. I ask myself, who am I talking about when I say we? Who are you talking about when you say we? Who's included in your we? Like, we must ask that question because there are people who have not forgotten mm. and who do not count themselves as part of your we. And you realise that the more you go to Marae and you realise that the stories are told and retold and the history, uh, the, the, the sense of the mamai is so present. I've just come from a noho, so mm. I feel it. I'm feeling it. It does mm. feel spiritual. So um, language is so important. We use short words. You know, we use... Um, back in the day, it was, you know, kin and kūpapa for you know, the loyalists and the rebels. Today, you know, we have activists and uh, public servants. You know, just think about that word public servant versus activist. Like when I grew up, I probably would have thought that a public servant was a really good person. I'm not making any judgment about this, actually, but just to recognise that my children mm -hmm. grow up and think that activist is a good word, so I just... Language, so important, like the data. It's got the story behind the story, the story behind the words. Which parts of the, um, the stories actually start to inform the future? Because, you know, we've got now and before, 
mm-hmm. and we start looking at using this um, information, these stories, uh, for the future. Chris? I decided this is going to be a contemporary atlas of, of Aotearoa. There hasn't been one for 20 years. The last one was Russell Kirkpatrick's one in the late 90s that came out around about the same time as the historical atlas. And it's going to be a whole lot of sort of snapshots of, of now. And then as I tried to do that, it was like, ah, oh, <laughs> history's really important. And, and we can't understand the present moment without looking back. And, and so this, and what crept in was all of these things that looked back in time. It's, there's something about showing change mm-hmm. and showing how, how much things have changed over time that I hope reminds a person that this present moment is just the present moment. Mm-hmm. One of the most delightful things about putting this out has actually been letters, a few emails, not, I make it sound like I'm getting a mailbag of letters, but like a few letters from parents with, of, of children and writing about their children reading this book. Mm-hmm. And one in particular about this, this young boy who was looking at this spread, in fact, and he asked his dad to show him oh, hang on, when was I born? And he showed him when he was born, and he's like, oh, when were you born? And he pointed back to when he was born, and oh, when were my grandparents born? And, and going, I'm really young, aren't I? <laughs> and, and, and I hope that, like, it's, that, that, that both geographically and, and historically that it helps people kind of position themselves a little, mm. and that, that I hope is one of the contributions that this book in some small way might make, Mm. that it helps people go, oh, this is the little slice that I've experienced, Mm. and this is some of what's gone before, and, and, yeah, the final thing is, I guess, with with longitudinal stuff like this, it suggests that even though things might be bleak, that there is a possibility for change, and that change is possible, so I see things like this as hopeful, Mm. um, but also cautionary. I know that there's an opportunity for the public to actually ask some questions. Sure. Um, so if the microphone can come to the middle, and if anybody wishes to actually ask a question, you can come to the microphone and ask a question. Um, very quick question. When is your second book coming out? With all those bits <laughs> yeah. that you missed out on your first yeah. book. Because uh, it's fascinating oh, stuff. Thank you. Um, uh, pass. Um, there, is actually a, there is actually something that I've been thinking about, but it is unstarted as of yet, and it... We'll, yeah, I'll take a look at it in the second half of the year. But I'm just sort of... Um, you were saying this took five years. Yeah, five calendars. Yeah. yeah, but you've also said there's a thousand more stories that have been... Yeah, and I threw away the first two and a half years. You threw years. away? There's nothing oh, from oh, the first okay. two and a half years appears. Oh, maybe two or three. Oh, yeah, the yes. Rivers map actually was from the beginning. Yeah, um, the creative that's process it. of the two and a half years that... <laughs> I, I'm racked with self-doubt as a person. Oh. I just... <laughs> What scared you guys the most? Did you, was there any scary parts? I have no scary moments to share, but if I could pick up on yeah. your question before that in terms of the, the future focus of this book, for me, every spread has that. It's really clearly a snapshot, a present look at a lot of issues and opening up. If we looked at something like this again in a few years' time, what is the stuff that is missing now? Where does a nation want to go? And it's testing us between um, Western values and Māori values, Indigenous values, and 
generally the Western values are um, about economy and about the use of resource and where Māori values are for tomorrow. And we're starting to look as a nation, we're starting to say, look, there is a lot of merit in tomorrow to make sure that we do look after yeah. our papatuanuku. And, and ironically now mm. it's called innovation to, you know, g g live communally. Like, what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> People are catching up, yeah. hey? There's this thing about going forward by going back and around and everything. But actually, one other thing that you asked us is to think about, you know, what we take away from that. And mm. one of my worries is a, a growing sense of divisiveness. And um, because a lot of the issues we deal with are, have an element of fear, and fear can be very... Uh, paralyzing for individuals but divisive for societies and I uh, I've said this before about climate change in particular but I wish it would become more of a team sport where every perspective is valued because everybody contributes something to often a very shared goal you'd find even with people who might turn up as from opposing views initially or from different perspectives that the values and the goals you end up sharing. So if we can just sort of build respect for different perspectives and look at the what lies ahead rather than sort of separating and, you know, people... Yeah, I, I, again, I can't articulate it, but a lot of the way we collect data about people in particular is trying to categorise them, trying to put them in boxes. Yeah. And I'm, I'd like to see more unboxing and looking at values and future goals and then seeing the contributions of everyone, whichever box we sit mm. in, whichever category we sit in. Mm. And even that distinction between Matauranga Māori, Indigenous values, Western values, I think there's people who are, you know, who are somewhere on a spectrum of different options in all of those. I was wondering if we could find out how his family would have described him. Yes. Crazy Uncle Chris is how I often get oh. referred to. It's like the guy who shows up with the massive beard to family gatherings and <laughs> plays with my nieces and nephews with, as my brothers and sisters. Like My brother and sister sort of try to relax. and um, Yeah, just the one who they don't quite know what I do but, um, and hasn't quite followed the career paths. That, that Unconventional. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but I think they're quite happy. That this, mm. the, and surprised that that mm. thing that I was working on and Chris like presents. Yeah, it actually came out and and um, <laughs> some some someone at the supermarket they overheard them talking about it and like that sort of yeah it was yeah he, he seems to Famous, be doing all right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Hey, thank you to our audience. Thank you to our panel, our team, and so we're going to finish off with a um, a small song from. Um, Tairawhiti, and you all know it, and it's got Waiapu in it, the essence of who we are. Po kare kare ana, ngā wai o Waiapu, fiti atu koe hine, marino ana e. Eine hoki mai ra kamate aho.
Have a great day. Thank you.